any of the children we can come on right through here follow Lee right along in this area right back here okay let's pray father we thank you that we could sing these songs to you that we could express our love for you our gratitude for what you've done what you're doing what you're yet going to do in our lives and the life of this planet we thank you Lord that we can come here today confident that your word is not going to take us in a wrong direction it's not going to take us in a way that would take us away from you but it would draw us ever closer to you Lord, we pray that you'd help us as we continue this series in 1 Samuel and we're seeing both the triumph and the glory and the sadness and the brokenness of the world that it reminds us, Lord, that you are still God, you are King. And we celebrated that in even our songs today, that we come to you recognizing your majesty and your greatness. We would ask that you'd help us as we come to this passage this morning as we study your word, that you'd be with us and lead us and guide us, we pray. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. If you've been with us in this series, we've been working in 1 Samuel. And there in 1 Samuel, we've been looking at the story of David. And if you've been with us in recent weeks, you know that David has been on the run. He was such an per incredible person, the one who killed Goliath, the one who led all the battles. And except for Saul, continued to get more crazy and crazy, more and more jealousy, and so David is continuing to be on the run. And that's where we have kind of in our passage this morning, just a little bit in review to remind what was going on. One of the key passages there in the chapter before, in chapter 1, it was this passage and said, when then we moved on, the, where it talked about the fact that David was in just absolute despair, not knowing what to do. And you remember it was that kind of strange passage that talked about the fact that he's on the run and he's getting so tired of doing this and all these things are happening to him. And then when you look in the passage, and I think I've got it marked here, 1 Samuel chapter 22, if you're with me on that one. In chapter 22, you can see how bad things are getting for him. You remember that fact that when he went to Nob and he tried to get the food and they had the food, but it was the, 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 the consecrated food and yet they gave it to him. And what happened, of course, is David realized he's got his run, and so he's on the move. And he's got to, he, in this passage, he's sort of hitting bottom. This has got to be one of the most embarrassing things that happened to him in his lifetime. Here he is, the killer of Goliath. And here's what happens. David fled that day from Saul's presence, and he went to King Achish of Gath. But Achish's servant said to him, Isn't this David? the king of the land? Don't they sing about him during their dances? Quote, Saul is killed as thousands, but David is tens of thousands. David took this to heart and became very afraid of King Achish of Gath. So he pretended to, he pretended to be insane in their present. He acted like a madman around them, scribbling on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Not one of his great moments in his life. And the way the king responds to him is just so classic. Look, you can see the man's crazy, Achish said to his servants. Why do you bring him to me? Do I have such a shortage of crazy persons that you brought this one over to act crazy around me? Is this one going to go into my house? Like, no. So David escaped, but not without just really hitting bottom in a sense of, yeah, I escaped, but this is terrible. God keeps telling me through the prophet that I'm going to be king, and yet things seem to get worse. And so that's where it brings us to our chapter this morning, because in this chapter this morning, 
We're going to continue on this passage in 1 Samuel 2, 22. And here it starts off this way. So David left Gath. This is right after the thing of where he was slobbering. He left Gath and he took refuge in the cave of Agilon. This is in the very wilderness area of southern Israel, trying to stay awake from all the, away from all the people that are looking for him. When David's brother and his father's whole family heard it, they went down and joined him there. And that was wise of David to make sure that he got his family out of there because Saul is getting increasingly strange, more and more vengeful. And so they realized if we don't get something, we need to have some way to protect my family. And he did. And so we notice in this, and he says, in addition, and here he describes the guys he had working for him. Now see if you wanted to employ this group for your company. In addition, every man who was desperate in debt or discontented rallied around him. This doesn't sound like the guy you want for be leading your country, I mean your group. But this is all he had. And so he said he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. That's a good number of guys. But the other problem is you're out in the middle of the wilderness and you got to feed 400 guys. And that's a real trouble when you know Saul, uh, um, Saul has got guys out there looking for them to try to kill him. So notice, if you would, in the next verse. From there, David went to Mizpah of Moab. You remember, if you remember your geography, Moab is on the east side of the Jordan River in the Dead Sea. And I was there last summer, and I forgot how amazing it is. I mean, you have these really steep cliffs going up, and so it works really well for to be able to hide. And so he's over now on the east side, and he said he went to, he went to the king of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, and by the way, remember, Moab was often fighting with Israel. Not at this point, but before and after they were. But he came to Mizpah of Moab, where he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother stay with you until I know what God will do for me. I kind of like that phrase. He recognized, I'm not sure what God is going to do. I mean, I'm forced to just trust in him because I don't know if I'm going to get killed or I'm going to survive. And so what happens, you see in the next verse, it said, so he, David, left them, that is his family, in the care of the king of Moab. It's a little strange because, you know, they sometimes fought with him. But they stayed with him the whole time that David was in the stronghold. To his credit, he cared for his parents to make sure they were going to get caught up in the sad tragedy that was about to happen. Then the prophet Gad said to David, let's stop there for a second. Gad is not a person we've come across, but he is going to be one of the prophets that's going to become very important in the lifetime of David in his later part after he's become king. And so here is new, the new guy who's here who's named, Dad, who's named Gad. So the prophet Gad said to David, don't stay in the stronghold. Leave and return to the land of Judah. In other words, go back to your own land, which is again is a big question. Um, if I go back you know that Saul's going to try to kill me. Yeah, but he said, you need to go. So he returned to the land of Judah. And so David left, and he went into the forest of Hereth. We really don't even know where that is, somewhere in southern Israel. But anyway, Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. At that time, Saul was in Gibeah, sitting under the tamarisk tree at the high place. Again, a place where they would have worship and stuff. His spear was in his hand. That's always dangerous. He's already shown, he's thrown a spear at David twice, and he threw it also at his own son, which kind of tells you where this guy is and where he's going downhill. His spear was in his hand, and all his servants were standing around him. And in the next few verses, you get to see Saul becoming more and more almost immature. He sounds like a big, whiny baby. Nobody likes me. Everything's terrible. Notice the way he acts. 
Saul said to his servants, listen, men of Benjamin, is Jesse's son going to give you all your fields? Remember, he doesn't even use the word David. It's like, that's a bad name. He just calls him Jesse's son. Is that he said, is Jesse's son going to give you all your fields and vineyards? Do you think he's going to make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Think he's going to do that? That's why all of you conspired against me. Nobody tells me when my own son makes a covenant with Jesse's son. None of you cares about me or tells me what, what my son has stirred up and my own servants to wait in ambush for me, as in the case today. In other words, he, this poor guy is going down quickly. It's just like he just feels like ev everything in the world is against him. Now remember, Saul may be crazy and he may be evil, but he's still the one the Lord chose to be anoint him to be the king. And that's why we've seen David has been so careful on several occasions and in one coming up where he had great opportunities to kill Saul, and yet he chose not to do it. He took cut off a little piece of the garment just to show him that he was there and could have cared, killed him when he, Saul was going to the bathroom in the cave. But he said, I would not do this to the Lord's anointed. Until God says that Saul's time is, is done, until then, I'm going to still honor him as a king, even though he and his hundreds of men are trying to kill me. It speaks well of David. We've got to be careful with David, because there's times when we look at David, we almost idolize him as the perfect adult male. Um, yeah, but he has his problems, as we know. He had issues with a beautiful woman that was ever going to be on uh, his to, to remember. But there are some great things in David that you see here. That willingness to say, I don't know what God is doing here, but I'm willing to trust him. And so he said, he said, they wait in ambush for me, as is in the case today. Then Doag the Edomite, ooh, the bad guy again. Doag was not an Israelite. He's, from, from, he's, he's an Edomite from Edom. And he's the one that is going to cause the problems here. Then Doeg the Edomite was in charge of Saul's servant. And he answered, I saw Jesse's son come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub and Nob. In other words, I saw David there. In other words, he's again ingratiating himself to Saul. See, I, I, I'm keeping watch here, man. I'm with you. Now, of course, he's got good reasons to try to keep following Saul. He, if he is in charge of all the sheep and goats for, for Saul, that's a huge position. He's making lots of money. And so he wants to make sure he's on the right side of the team here, which is going to be with Saul. And so he said, I saw Jesse's son, that's David, come to Ahimelech. Ahimelech, again, was the primary guy there at Nob among all those other priests. He'd be like what we would call the high priest. He said, I saw him come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. And again, we don't know exactly what that means. Does that mean he personally prayed to the Lord and the Lord gave him information? Did he go to Ahimelech and say, would you, with that ephod, would you give me a yes, no, maybe reason what to do here? Whatever it was, he said he gave him this. And so he not only gave him provisions, this is, this is a Doag saying, he also gave David the sword of Goliath the Philistine. And it's like, whoa. When you're the guy that's got the sword that killed Goliath, that's a pretty special place, a special thing to have. So in other words, he's really making against David, saying he's got all the stuff he needs to be king. Don't you see, Saul? You need to get him. You need to kill that guy. So we see what happens. The king sent messengers to summon Ahimelech, the priest, son of Ahitub, 
and his father's whole family who were priests in Nob. All of them came to the king. In other words, they all were there saying, we have not been responsible for what's going on. We do, for anybody who comes, we pray to the Lord for them. Then Saul said, listen, son of Ahitub, I'm at your servants, my lord, he said. Saul asked them, why did you and Jesse's son conspire against me? Which they hadn't done. David had asked him for food as men were hungry. But again, he's getting stranger and stranger. He said, well, you gave him bread and a sword, and you inquired of God for him so he could rise up against me and wait in ambush, as is the case today. In other words, accusing all these priests of being in on this and helping David, when really he's trying to be as, they're trying to be as neutral as they can, but it's not going to work. Ahimelech replied to the king, who among all your servants, king, is as, joy as faithful as David? Saul didn't want to hear that. But it was the truth. Who among all your servants is faithful of David? He is the king's son-in-law. He's captain of your bodyguard. He's honored in your house. Why is it you're so obsessed to try to kill him? Was today the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. You've come to ask for information. Others have come. Anybody who comes, we come and pray and see what God's direction would be for them. Why are you signal us out for this? Please don't let the king make an accusation against your servant or against any of my father's household. For your servant didn't have any idea about this. In other words, we weren't conspiring against you. But again, he's going cycling down and down. Everybody's against them. Everybody except Doab, they're all against them. And of course, this is where the tragedy comes. The king said, you're going to die, Himelech, you and your father's whole family. That's a big family, by the way. The king then ordered the guards standing by him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because they sided with David. For they knew he was fleeing, but they didn't tell me. But here's the good thing. But the king's servants would not lift a hand to execute the priests of the Lord. Like, We're not doing this. You, you may be crazy enough to kill all these people, but we're not going to do it. And so here he's even a bigger problem. He's just said, go kill them all. But his own men are like, mm, no, no, thank you. These are the priests. I mean, these are the holy guys. You want to wipe out the whole group of priests up at Nob? And he said, go, don't, not going to do this. Why would you do this? And notice what happens. So the king said to Doag, again, he's not an Israelite. He wants to make sure that he's working with Saul. He said, go and execute the priest. So Doag the Edomite went and executed the priest himself. On that day, he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephods. These are the priests. He killed them all. That's one way to let David know what he's going to do with people like him. Kill them all. It's not just that he killed them, but it's what goes along with this. He also struck down Nod. That's the town where the priests live. The city of the priests with the sword, both men and women, children and infants, oxen, donkeys and sheep. Kill them all. Anything that's alive, kill it. And he wipes out the place where people worship God at Nob. And they wiped out all the priests who served there. And this is the guy who is the anointed of the Lord and wonders why things are going bad for him. And so notice what happens here. However, we always thank God for those howevers. However, one of the sons of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, escaped. In other words, there was 85, but there was got one guy. His name was Abiathar. And Abiathar is going to have an interesting role. But anyways, Abiathar escaped and he fled to David.
And so he comes with the tragic news of what happened. Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David responded this way. He said, David said to Abiathar, I knew that Doag, the Edomite, was there that day, and that he was sure to report to Saul. I myself, notice him taking responsibility for this. I myself am responsible for the lives of everyone in your father's family. Well, in a sense, but I mean, he certainly didn't try to do that. It's just because of the craziness of Saul that all this happened. But he said, I'm responsible for the lives of everyone in your family. I am, I, I'm so sorry. This is, this, this is a crazy man who's still king. And you can see why people are starting to flock to David and not to Saul. Now notice in verse 23, Stay with me, David said. Don't be afraid. For the one who wants to take your life, wants to, excuse me, the one who takes my life, wants to take your life. You're going to be safe with me. Now that passage is very, very tragic, but there's two things I want you to think about in this passage. Two things that come out of this passage that I think are significant. The first one is, is the interesting thing about the certainty of prophecy. Now you might say, I don't remember them saying anything about prophecy in this passage. They haven't. That doesn't mean it's not significant, but they're about the certainty of prophecy because what you're seeing is there with the destruction of all those priests, 85 of them, destruction of Nob is the ultimate end of the prophecy that God made years before, maybe 40, 50 years before when, God, when the Lord, a, a, a person told uh, Eli that you and your sons and all your descendants are going to be wiped out. You may remember when we were back in chapter 2, at the very beginning of the series, said a man of God came to Eli and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Didn't I reveal myself to your ancestral house when I was in Egypt? Yes. Look, the days are coming when I'm going to cut off your strength and the strength of your ancestral family so that none of your family will reach old age. In other words, this is prophecy that goes all the way back to chapter 2. It goes back again in chapter 3. Therefore, this is another pr priest giving a re a, 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 telling them what's going on. Therefore, I have sworn to Eli's family, the iniquity of Eli's family. Remember the priests, uh, they were just creeps. Um, Phineas and I lost the name of the other one for the moment. What was it? Thank you, Hophni. They got it. They were lousy. And he said, you know what? We're going to wipe them out and said, the iniquity of Eli's family will never be wiped out, either by sacrifice or offering. Now, you can take all the sacrifices you want. God has said, no, there's going to be judgment. You can make all the offerings, lambs, goats, doves, whatever you want, but it's not going to help because of the fact that you have ignored the failure of your sons. You have not been the priest that you have been, you should have been, and God has said, done. We're done with you. This whole group is going out. You go back to this verse, verse 22, verse 18. So Doag the Edomite went and executed the priest himself. On that day he killed 85 men who wore the ephod. It's the end of the line of Eli's family. Fifty years down the road, God finally brings that judgment upon him. Now, if some of you have been following the passage directly, you may have went, wait a minute, Abiathar lived. That's true. He did live. But what's interesting, the passage itself in 1 King says what that was all about. In 1 Kings chapter 2, 26, we have this verse. It said, this is after the time of David. This is the time of Solomon. It said, you know, because uh, Biathar had served for a long time for David. But in 1 Kings, it says, so Solomon banished Abiathar from being the Lord's priest. And now notice this. This is what the writer of the scripture says. 
It fulfilled the Lord's prophecy he had spoken at Shiloh against Eli's family. That must be almost 100 years ago. And the point of the sin is God says something's going to happen. It's going to happen, but it may not be on our timeline. It could be next week. It could be next year. It could be a long time. In fact, for many of us, one of the biggest issues a lot of Christians struggles with is, really, after 2,000 years, is Jesus really coming? How long does he expect people to wait? Maybe we're kidding ourselves. Maybe it's never going to happen. And what's happening here in this passage is saying, wait a minute, it almost took 100 years for all this to happen. But what God said 100 years ago has taken place here in the new king, after the time of David and the time of Solomon. And now it tells us directly it fulfilled the Lord's prophecy. In other words, all prophecies, we have that passage that we know, and Second Peter's famous. First, all of you should know this. No prophecy of the scriptures comes to one from its own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, and here's that key phrase, men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It's saying you can trust what God says through his spirit. And it may have been now almost 2,000 years. What if it's 3,000 years? 4,000 years. Well, of course, we're not going to be here to know at that point. But the point is, if we have to wait, are you willing to wait? Because the one thing we know when God makes a promise, you can take that to the bank. And here was almost 100 years, a prophecy almost a century before being fulfilled in the time of St. David's son, Solomon. That's the second thing I want you to look at when we talk, we talk about the importance of the return of Christ. But I want to go to that passage that I read just a little while ago about Saul and the Antichrist. I have to admit, when I was reading this, I was reading different commentaries, I thought, what in the world does Saul have to do with the Antichrist? And the more I read it, I thought, okay, I think I know where they're going with this. And it's this. When you think about it, there have always been people. In that passage, remember what it said? Antichrist is coming. But already, Antichrists are here. That's a very, very important passage. It's saying, yes, we know at the end of time there's going to be this awful person, creature, whatever it is, awful thing, who's coming called the Antichrist, one who's totally opposed to Christ. But the point is, all the way since Lord has been, I mean, since, since God has been working with his people, there have been people who fit that thing of Antichrist, those who are opposed to God's people, those who do what they could to destroy all that God is going to do. For example, Pharaoh becomes, you might say, like the poster child of Antichrist. He's there to destroy the Israelites, that they would all drown there in the Red Sea. And yet God provided for them. And of course, you can go through time, and you can spend a long time, and go through hundreds of things, thinking of the way people who have filled that role of Antichrist, they may not, they probably don't think they have a little badge that said, hi, I'm Bob, I'm the Antichrist. But they're people who are acting as if an Antichrist. Now, they're opposed to what God is doing. Pharaoh's a good example. Jezebel, remember her? Uh, she wanted to wipe out the Israelites. God took care of her as well. You can go on down the line. Athaliah was another one who tried to kill all of God's people. You can go on down from there. You can go to Nero if you want to go into the New Testament time. You can go down from Nero. You can go down even before that. Antiochus Epiphanes who worked very hard for a long time to destroy all the Jews. You can come through all different kinds. But the point is they're always here. Hitler is a good example. He was determined to kill everybody he could. And what you see in this passage is the reality of evil. 
We all know about evil. Some of us experience evil. We know what it is. But this is talking about spiritual evil, evil in the sense of that fact that there is an opposition. There always is. There always will be until the time that Christ returns. And so this passage is important of reminding us, of saying, you know what? This is a world where there's evil. I mean, that's just so clear. That's nothing you have to argue about. But it's saying it's not just worrying about what's happening down there when the Antichrist comes. There's Antichrist right now. Who Again, we don't know their names or what they're doing, but they're opposed to God. And Peter gives a great statement here. And he says this, Dear friends, when the fiery ordeals arise among you to test you, don't be surprised by it, as if something unusual were happening to you. Which is interesting. We've mentioned this before. Many people are very concerned that America could very easily drop into a very, very deep pit. And the question would be, would we be able to stand it when we went through all that kind of suffering? There are people that are thinking that we have failed as pastors, that would include me as a pastor, of preparing our people from the fact that there is going to be suffering. And that's a real change that we have to be thinking about. It's not like we want that. Jesus doesn't tell us, you know, try to go get, see if you can suffer a little more today. But it comes with the territory of following Jesus. Jesus said, if they, if they treated me like this, what do you think they're going to do to you? And it's saying, here's an example of that, of where we see evil at its worst trying to work. He goes on, Peter goes on and said, instead, as you share in the suffering of the Messiah, rejoice so that you may also rejoice with great joy at the revelation of his glory. It's like, you know what? No one wants suffering. We don't just suffer for the sake of it, for the fun of it. It's saying, but recognize you're not alone. Your master has suffered on a cross. And he'll give you the strength and the courage you need in the midst of your hurt, in the midst of your loss. It may be real. Our lifetime of our children or grandchildren, real persecution of where people are being hurt or killed. It's saying, okay, you can rejoice with great joy at the revelation of his glory. So a little phrase I liked what Guy said about this. He said, sufferings are but little chips of the cross. He's obviously not thinking wooden cross, but the point is a little bit of the cross is what we do when we're willing to deal with the suffering and the struggle, the reality of evil of recognizing that this is a broken world with broken people, but we have a great God. And in the midst of this, we say, Lord, there are antichrists everywhere. All I want to know is, Lord, help me to live out a life that's glorifying to you. Where I take what you've given me, whether it's pain or suffering, whatever it is, would you use me to make an impact in the lives of people? This passage is a sad one. 85 priests murdered, killed all the families, all the children, all the babies, all the animals. Was it, was it evil? Absolutely. Was God still in charge? Yes. Did God endorse it? No. Did he allow it? Yes. He did. And we look back at his story, and we look at our story now, and realize, Lord, help us to be found faithful even in the midst of suffering. Father, we thank you that we could be together to hear your good word. We thank you, Father, for the scriptures that you've given us. Be with us. Encourage us, we pray. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.